You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. I'm sure you've noticed that prices just seem to be going up and up lately. You know, there's absolutely no question that inflation has once again reared its ugly head. Yet what we're experiencing right now isn't much different from what happened in the United States shortly after World War II, You know, when returning soldiers were flush with cash to spend, but housing and material goods, they were in incredibly short supply. Well, recent inflation peaked at 9.1% in June of 2022, which really is awful. But compare that with March of 1947, when inflation peaked at 20%. That's more than double. And while no one has a crystal ball to see into the future, we all know that prices will stabilize at some point. But wouldn't it be great if that happened sooner, you know, instead of later? What we need is a good plan, a simple plan to help bring prices down. And it seems that no one has one today. But there was a coastal Massachusetts city that did have such a plan back in 1947. And within days of it being put into action, it was quickly adopted by towns and cities all across the nation. So could it work today? And probably more importantly, did it work even back then? Well, coming up next, I present to you the story of the Newburyport Anti-Inflation Plan, and you'll learn just how successful it was at curbing post-war inflation. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information Everyone, I hope you're doing well. Now, before we jump into today's story, I just want to let you know that this episode marks a milestone for the Useless Information Podcast. You see, it was 15 years ago this month that I launched the podcast with a simultaneous release of four episodes. Three of them came from my previous two books, and one served as an introduction to the podcast. Now, oddly, I remember thinking that I was late to the podcast game, that I had somehow, you know, missed the boat. And that's because I've been toying around with the idea of launching the podcast for a while, but I was working two full-time jobs back then, so, you know, I just kept pushing off the recording of those initial episodes. It wasn't until December of 2007, while I was on Christmas break from teaching, that I finally found the time to do so. And I couldn't have imagined back then I'd still be recording the podcast today. Now, if you hang around a bit until the end of this episode, I'll share some numbers with you. The other bit of news is that this podcast is now in a new network. For more than a year, the people at Airwave Media have been after me to join their network, and I have to admit that is really flattering. But I had to wait for my contract with my prior network to expire. 
And Airwave's probably a much better fit for this podcast since they not only focus on history and similar podcasts, but they also work hard to reach a much larger audience. And of course, increasing listenership is something that's very difficult for niche podcasters like me to do, so I'm really looking forward to their assistance. Okay, time for me to stop blabbing on here. Let's dive into today's story, which is a very timely one. And that's because the prices on just about everything seems to be out of control lately. You know, that dreaded thing called inflation is taking a bigger and bigger chunk of our paychecks with each passing week. Since the end of World War II, there have been six other periods where inflation, as measured by the CPI or Consumer Price Index, has been 5% or higher. And of course, each inflationary period is very different, but the one we're experiencing right now, well, it's thought by many economists to most closely parallel what happened shortly after World War II ended. Now, during the war, households were very limited as to what they could purchase. You see, factories, they were geared up for military production, and that meant there was a shortage of most household goods. And of course, both rationing and price controls were used to keep the prices under control. But then the war ended and the soldiers returned home and that created a sudden demand for non-existing goods. You know, you can forget buying a car, radio, washing machine, or whatever. They were simply impossible to find. The reality was that it took time for the factories that were geared up for the war, you know, to retool. And since people were unable to purchase goods, their personal savings, well, it just began to balloon. And now that they were flush with cash and there was nothing to purchase... They thought, well, maybe I'll get a new home or get a nice apartment. But even that was impossible. Why? Because there were so few buildings erected from the time of the Great Depression through the end of the war. So even housing was in short supply. It really was the perfect recipe for high inflation. You have demand for goods far exceeding supply. Price controls were just lifted. There's a severe shortage of housing. And of course, people, they were in the mood to spend. So let me first throw some numbers at you so you can get a feel for just how bad inflation was back then. For all of 1945, that's the last year of World War II, inflation came in at a reasonable 2.3%. Most people can live with that. Yet by December of 1946, that's just one year later, it had jumped to 18%, and it peaked four months later in March of 1947 at 20%. As you can imagine, many were certain that a recession was fast approaching. And even worse, they were hoping that it wouldn't turn into another Great Depression. Of course, something needed to be done, but, you know, just like today, there never seems to be any good solutions. Now, the federal government does have some tools to help ease inflation. You know, it can raise interest rates or increase taxes. But, as you know, they usually inflict financial pain on those who can least afford it. So during the spring of 1947, President Harry S. Truman made repeated requests to manufacturers, distributors, and retailers to do all they possibly could to lower prices, basically saying, don't raise prices, it's not good for the economy. But of course, that's far easier said than done. Well, one town decided to take matters into its own hands. On Thursday, April 17th of 1947, a special meeting was called of the Newburyport Retail Merchants Division of the Northeast Essex Development Council. It's quite a handful of a name. Anyway, a meeting of the Development Council was called at City Hall in Newburyport, Massachusetts. There, hardware store proprietor John E. Swanson offered up a simple solution to the ever-increasing price of goods. 
and a discussion took place among the members. You know, some modifications were suggested, and they voted to give it a try for 10 days. And if successful, they'd extend the program indefinitely. In fact, they were so proud of what they had come up with that the council president, that's Thomas E. Littlefield, he fired off a telegram to President Truman summarizing the detail of their so-called Newburyport plan. It read, quote, Newburyport is rushing plans to make effective your appeal for lower prices. A spontaneous movement is underway here to roll back retail prices to the consumer on a citywide basis, embracing all goods and services wherever possible. It continues, Our retailers are pledging themselves, one, to support our government and to start the trend toward lower prices. Two, to reduce our prices on goods and services and refund to the customer 10% whenever possible. Three, to notify our suppliers that we are dropping our prices and that we expect them to do likewise. Four, to be sincere in this effort and not take advantage of shortages or non-competitive items to raise prices. And five, to refuse to buy merchandise for resale that in our opinion is too high. And it concludes, it is our hope that the Newburyport plan will lead the nation helping to stabilize our economy. The plan will go into effect next week, and we will advise you of all details. Copies of this telegram were sent to Massachusetts Representative George J. Bates and Senators Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. and Leverett Saltonstall. The message was also forwarded to various chambers of commerce across the nation, you know, suggesting that they adopt similar plans. And it really was a very simple idea. You know, cut retail prices by 10% wherever possible, then you turn and pressure your suppliers to lower their prices. And of course, if cities and towns all across the country did the same, inflation, it would be stopped dead in its tracks. Norman J. Randall, who was the executive secretary for the Development Council, he remarked that, quote, everyone was blaming everyone else for higher prices with no one taking the initiative. So this is Newburyport's way of taking the first step. On Monday, April 21st in 1947, that's the day before the price cuts were scheduled to begin, the front page of the Newburyport Daily News featured the headline, quote, The Newburyport Plan. Let's all support it. Now, the story beneath it reads, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. Here we go, quote, Primarily the Newburyport Plan for a 10% price reduction on all permissible goods and services, effective here tomorrow, has been devised to help you, the consumer, to buy some things you want at figures below the unprecedentedly high levels which have been reached in the post-war inflation spiral. It is also geared to help your neighbor, the merchant, who has begun to suffer through public resistance to high prices and mounting inventories. In a larger, more idealized sense, the plan may be regarded as the spearhead of a national movement to adjust an economic machine seriously out of balance. Widespread recognition of the Newburyport plan will make our city famous as the place where a great idea was originated and developed. Who knows how far-reaching, how momentous the results may be? And I'll read you one more paragraph. The public has a serious responsibility in helping to make the plan work. If the public fails to respond, the Newburyport plan will go down in history as a flop and a folly. We can't let that happen. It won't happen. And it ends with an exclamation point. 
Now, a small billboard was erected to announce that a meeting was planned for that evening at City Hall. It was the reproduction of a Western Union telegram that was sent off to President Truman earlier in the day. Quote, We hear via radio Washington stores have followed the Newburyport plan to lower prices. Would appreciate your endorsement to our plan for a rally tonight. And it was signed by Norman J. Randall, Executive Secretary, Northeast Essex Development Council. And while they didn't get that endorsement, the meeting went on as planned. More than 400 people, predominantly male, they crowded into the City Hall Auditorium to learn more. Richard Cole, who's a reporter for the Boston office of the Wall Street Journal, declared that, quote, Probably a shot is being fired here that is going to be heard throughout merchandising circles. And he agreed with the majority of those in the audience. He felt that, quote, the Newburyport plan could have wide reverberations, and he added, all of us could be in on something of national significance. Well, the next morning, 15,000 residents of this coastal city awoke to find that they were the center of national attention. Photographers, reporters, they just seemed to be everywhere. And all of the major papers, and that includes Time and Life magazines, they all came to report on what was happening. And in the days before television, there was a PATH newsreel team there to film what was going on. And what everyone found was that sales were being held in just about every retail establishment in Newburyport. A full-page cooperative ad on page 3 of the Newburyport Daily News listed the more than 100 merchants who had agreed to lower their prices. Then the next day, they ran a story that listed 10 additional retailers, you know, retailers who had missed the print deadline. Then overhead signs announcing the Newburyport plan were hung over State Street, Story Avenue, and Pleasant Streets, while wooden signs were erected at the city's traffic circle and in other locations. Store owners, in addition to the sale signs, they placed banners in the windows. One read, Okay, Mr. President, we're with you. And another read, Leading the way in lowering prices and fighting inflation. Of course, all this publicity was great for Newburyport, but the big question was whether or not any customers would show up. You know, a 10% discount is unlikely to get anyone into a store today. So was it enough back in 1947? You bet it was. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And while Tuesdays are typically the slowest day of the week for retail businesses, the shoppers, they just flocked to Newburyport in large numbers. While some stores only saw moderate sales increases, others reported that sales were up anywhere from 30 to 100%. Reportedly, the items in highest demand were men's furnishings and automobile supplies. Then, as the weekend approached, more and more people just crowded the stores. Craze Men's Shop reported sales 100% above normal, while their women's store, that was doing 200% more. And then there's the Lincoln Department stores. They decided to follow the Newburyport plan at all 15 of its locations, and they claimed sales for that Thursday. They were up 110% above normal. 
the LLPV hardware store, which just happened to be owned by John Swanson, the brainchild behind the Newburyport plan, he reported sales were up 45%. And it was the same thing with other businesses. Drug stores were up 40 to 60%, jewelry stores up 40%, and so on. Yet the real key to the Newburyport plan being a success was having other towns and cities do the same. You know, just having one town lower its prices by 10% was not enough to force suppliers and manufacturers to follow suit. It just wasn't going to happen. And the first town to agree to the plan was Amesbury, Massachusetts, which had a population of about 10,000 back then. Now, they probably had no choice because Amesbury lies directly north from Newburyport, so probably these sales were siphoning away their customers. And this was followed by Leominster, which had a population of 22,000 people, then Brockton, Massachusetts, with a population of 63,000. And then there's Spring Valley, which became the first New York municipality to follow Newburyport's lead. And it just spread like wildfire from there. Communities across the country adopted the plan, and this included, and certainly not limited to, Old Town, Maine, Multnomah, Oregon, Chester, Pennsylvania, and Elgin, Illinois. And then there were those that kind of had a wait-and-see approach. You know, they took the plan under consideration but wanted to see if it worked. This included Toledo, Ohio, Great Neck, Long Island, New Haven, Connecticut, Danville, Kentucky, Newport, Rhode Island, suburban Philadelphia, and just so many more. But one place that had no interest in the Newburyport plan was Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and it lies about 20 miles or 32 kilometers north or somewhat north of Newburyport. Their Chamber of Commerce president, Harry Clark, stated, quote, Newburyport is just engaging in a publicity stunt, a stunt worth millions of dollars. He added that the businessmen there, quote, are just seizing an opportunity to conduct some sales. Of course, the Newburyport plan did not expect retailers to absorb the 10% loss on each sale indefinitely. Instead, the hope was that the retailers would pressure the suppliers and the manufacturers to lower their prices. And to accomplish this goal, the retailers began to send out form letters to their suppliers, you know, requesting price reductions. And the first large company to agree to price cuts was Lever Brothers, who agreed to cut the price on a number of their household goods by, you guessed it, 10%. That included Lux Toilet Soap, Lux Soap Flakes, Rinso, Lifebuoy, and Swan Soaps. And you may never have heard of these, but these were really popular products back in 1947, So this was a big step in the right direction. Shortly after this, Colgate-Palmolive-Pete announced they would offer the same discount on their soap products. And a day later, Procter & Gamble did the same. Cannon Mills, perhaps the largest manufacturer of linens and towels in the world at the time, they also reduced their prices by 10%. And here's a real bargain, at least looking back on it. DuPont lowered the cost of the now-banned DDT by 10%. Should have stocked up, huh? But my favorite was the Donut Corporation of America. They informed Bob Campbell, who was known as the State Street Donut King, that they were reducing his cost by, you know what, 10%. As all this was unfolding in Newburyport, word began to spread around Washington that maybe, you know, they should look at this. Senator Saltonsall, who was sent a copy of that initial telegram to President Truman, he cabled back that he was bringing the Newburyport plan to the attention of the White House. Then, a few days after the Newburyport plan got underway, 
John R. Steelman, who was the assistant to the President of the United States, and by the way, we now refer to that position as the White House Chief of Staff. Anyway, John R. Steelman wired the following message to the Northeast Essex Development Council's office, which was located at 12 Pleasant Street. Quote, on behalf of the president, I wish to congratulate the city of Newburyport on inaugurating a citywide plan for reducing prices. It is gratifying to know that other cities in your area are considering similar action. Your cooperation is very much appreciated. Vermont Senator Ralphie Flanders also expressed interest in the Newburyport plan, and he requested that the Development Council prepare a report and forward it on to him. While they were only six days into their 10-day trial period, they happily prepared the report and they sent it to Washington via airmail. Just think how costly that was back then. Now, he was a member of the Committee for Economic Development, so Flanders agreed to conduct hearings on the plan the following week, although I could find no evidence to suggest that ever happened. Development Council Secretary Randall was thrilled that this was happening. Quote, Democracy is working in Newburyport, he declared. The plan was designed for the little people, and the grassroots information is taking hold across the nation. Now, before I reveal the final impact of the Newburyport plan and whether something similar should be considered today to tackle inflation, let me first share with you some of my favorite advertisements. Now, I should mention I'm not reading the entire ads. I'm just reading the essential parts, and they're not necessarily in date order. Here's the first one. Mr. and Mrs. America, on your cooperation depends the success of this worthy experience of lowering the cost of living. By now, support and encourage our Newburyport plan, and we will have nationwide economy and prosperity instead of depression and disaster. You are backing your government when you're backing our Newburyport plan. Hyman's Corner Merrimack and Green Street, Newburyport. Next up we have, we're falling in line with the Newburyport plan. 10% off steak, chicken, lobster, and other foods. Shannon's, Route 1, Lafayette Road, Salisbury. Now what struck me funny about this one is if you can afford lobster, the 10% is not that critical. Third ad is 10% reduction on concrete, 15% reduction for veterans of World War II. Gilday Morrison Company, and then in parentheses it says, Concrete Boys. Newburyport Turnpike, Newberry. Next up we have the Newburyport plan. In answer to our government and President Truman's call for lower prices, Lamson Incorporated, Boston's largest chain of haberdashers, clothiers, announces a 10% cut on everything. Everything in our five stores, and we mean everything. Shirts, ties, underwear, hosiery, pajamas, sweaters, jackets, hats, raincoats, suits, topcoats, etc., etc. Got to get two etc.s in there. And the last one I have for you is, attention homeowners, price reductions better than the Newburyport plan. John's Manville asbestos sidewalls and asphalt roofing. That's one of those deals where you got 10% off way back then, and now you're spending a small fortune to remove the asbestos from your house. Now, the 10-day trial period of the Newburyport plan was set to expire on May 1st of 1947, so the merchants met that evening to determine whether they should continue on with it or not. And there was some discussion as to why businesses were unable to do so. For example, there was Frank Pond. He was a Merrimack Street grocer. 
He pointed out that he operated on an 18% margin, but his overhead was 15%. That left him with a profit margin of 3%. And if he continued with the plan, he'd be forced out of business. But in the end, a vote was taken among the 65 men that were present. They unanimously agreed to continue with the Newburyport plan indefinitely, but they made it clear that merchants unable to financially do so, they did not have to participate. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But a storm was a brewing. That's because suppliers and manufacturers were willing to offer the discounts for the 10-day trial period, but no longer. In addition, these lower prices were for Newburyport merchants only. Other towns had far less success in convincing their suppliers to do the same. Now, Newburyport retailers had mailed approximately 8,000 letters to their suppliers uh, you know, requesting discounts, and an estimated 90% agreed to do so. But Hingham, Massachusetts, they mailed approximately 1,500 similar letters, and according to their Chamber of Commerce chairman John A. Bunyan, quote, only four or five favorable replies were received. Now, many retailers who participated in offering the 10% discount, whether in Newburyport or not, they often found that they could only restock what they had sold at a much higher cost. Then you had Macy's department store in New York City who totally rejected the plan outright. So did the National Association of Furniture Manufacturers, General Electric, and the American Retail Federation. And organized labor shied away because they feared the widespread adoption of the Newburyport plan well, it would interfere with their efforts to secure a 15% raise. Another problem was that the ongoing supply shortages allowed manufacturers to set the retail prices, and they threatened to cut any retailer who sold below that. And on top of all this, on May 5, 1947, Massachusetts Governor Robert F. Bradford proposed that the state increase its sales, gas, and business taxes to make up for budget shortfalls. Needless to say, the Newburyport plan was doomed. Less than one month after the plan had been set in motion, most of the discount signs had been taken down. One by one, each retailer quietly withdrew from the program. The last person to admit defeat was John Swanson. You know, he was the father of the plan. He tried to keep it alive by offering the 10% discount in his hardware store every Tuesday, but took his sign down for good during the first week of September. Not even the Northeast Essex Development Council, you know, the plan's sponsor, they didn't last as long as Swanson did. 
They decided to disband on July 11, 1947, following a membership drive that Council President Thomas Littlefield describes as, quote, a dismal failure. Yet Swanson and many others were confident that the Newburyport plan did a lot of good. You see, psychologically, it gave consumers the feeling that something was being done to rein in inflation, you know, even if the plan had minimal effect in lowering the prices nationally. Plus, it showed the buying public that retailers were friend, not foe, and they were working with them to bring down prices. Well, I'll leave you with one additional statement that the Development Council issued before its demise. Quote, They say that we did not succeed in our purpose, that it is not economically possible to succeed. We say that we did succeed. We alone held back prices for a brief spell over a small area. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. I hope you enjoyed that story on the Newbury Port Anti-Inflation Plan. I was working on a different story uh, probably a few weeks ago, but then I decided to do this one at the last minute. So it just seemed timely, and I thought I'd share it with you. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, this is the 15th anniversary of the Useless Information Podcast. I went live on January 27th of 2008 with four episodes. Now, before I go through any numbers, I should tell you I've had two segments uh, early on and then maybe about five years ago where I've lost data. So I don't have an accurate number on anything, you know, prior to the last four or five years, but I have a general sense. And I can tell you those first four episodes that I uh, posted way back when, they've had over 132,000 downloads in total. Now, what most people don't realize is that the podcast only sits on one server. My podcast is uploaded to a site called Megaphone. And anywhere else you go, if you go to Apple or Spotify or Google or whoever, they just have a listing. So when you click on it, it goes out to the Megaphone server, and that's what uh, distributes the podcast to you. Now, at the end of each year, Spotify releases what they call Spotify Wrapped, where they give me a summary of what happened on Spotify So that doesn't include anything that happened on Apple or Google or any of the other players that are out there. But I thought I'd give you, you know, share some of those numbers with you. So here we go. According to Spotify, the number one episode of last year was the case of the hollow nickel. And of course, that led me to doing a three-part series with Marvin Lautenheiser, who was the lead cryptanalyst on that hollow nickel. But anyway, according to my stats, what I see in Megaphone is that was not the number one podcast for the year. It was number two. My data shows that the number one podcast was called The Glass House Girl. That was about the woman who lived in store windows, and she did that for a career basically for the rest of her life. But I have to say, both are really, really good stories. Now, Spotify claims that my podcast is among the top 10% of the most shared in the world, that 26% of my listeners follow the podcast, that I'm in the top 5% of the most followed podcasts, and my overall rating is 4.9. They also say that it created 900 minutes of new content, which was more than 96% of all the other creators in the history category. That one really surprised me. At least through Spotify, it played in 53 different countries last year. Of course, the United States is number one with 84%. Next comes Canada, then that is followed by Australia, the United Kingdom, and Ireland. Now, on my end, I see that South Africa actually slightly higher than Ireland, but they're both around 1% of the audience. 
And what really surprised me is who's listening to the podcast because I've always gotten email from mostly men. So my impression is it's a mostly male audience. But according to Spotify, 61% of my audience is female, 29% male, 2% non-binary, and 8% didn't specify. As for age range, Spotify says that 26.42% of my audience is in the 23 to 27 year uh, range. And that's not surprising because young people use a lot of technology. What did surprise me was the next category, which is just a little bit behind. At 26.02% was anyone between the ages of 60 and 150. Now, if you're 150 years old, you need to contact me. But anyway, uh, I was really surprised by that. Uh, uh, Third place is 28 to 34. And then it just drops from there. 35 to 49 comes in next. And then the age range that I'm in, which is 45 to 59, is in fifth place. Now I'll give you some data from my and from Megaphone. Uh, I do know that the most downloaded episode of all time on the podcast is known as the 34-Year Nightmare. Um, That one is well in excess of 50,000 downloads. I've never figured out why. It's a cool story, but I think there are better ones that I've done. As for the least popular, I can't say. When I looked at it last week, you know, after Spotify sent this stuff to me, I'm looking through the data, and clearly the worst performing podcast was The Man Who Gave His Birthday Away. That was a story about Robert Louis Stevenson who gave his birthday away to a little girl named Annie Ibe. You know, she hated her birthday because she was born on Christmas Day. But then I started looking through the data, and I said, how could it be doing that poorly? And then I realized that's when I switched uh, to Megaphone. And they are missing pretty much the first four months of data uh, from when I switched. So that was the first episode I uploaded when I switched to Megaphone. And it would have gotten most of its traffic in the first week or two. So all that is missing. So all I'm seeing is months out after it had been posted. And that's why it's showing up as the least popular episode. Anyway, in total, I've done 194 episodes. 187 of them were original stories. And then there were some bonus episodes thrown in there along the way. I've had at least 5.5 million downloads. I'm guessing it's closer to six if you include the uh, missing data. Now, I'll just bring this to a close here uh, in terms of data because it can get a little tedious. But for all of 2022, the number one city for downloads, this surprised me, I assumed it was New York, is Sydney, Australia. Number two is Chicago, three, Los Angeles. Four is Melbourne, Australia. So we got two cities in Australia. I wonder if my listener, Ian, had anything to do with that. Uh, But anyway, and number five was Minneapolis, Minnesota. Anyway, that's it with the stats. I thought you might be interested in some of that information. Now, even though I'm on a new network, nothing's really changed on your end. You can still get the podcast to any of the platforms out there, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Google, or whatever. And if you'd like to contact me about this episode, the podcast itself, the website, or whatever, You can use my email at steve at uselessinformation.org. You can go through Facebook Messenger, or you can use the contact form on the website, which is uselessinformation.org. My Twitter handle also remains unchanged. It's at uselessinfocast. And be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information podcast there, and it should pop up. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the Useless Information podcast is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. So be sure to visit airwavemedia.com 
where you'll find a curated selection of some of the best podcasts. And it's not just history. They have science, wellness, education, and the arts. So check it out. Anyway, I just want to thank everyone for the past 15 years and for making this podcast a success. It really is appreciated. I thank everyone who's listened. Take care, everyone. Bye. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.